Uh, we do have a little bit of unusual service today in that uh, I'm going to try to be done a little bit early, and then we have a number of announcements to work through at the end, and uh, just some things related to the new year, and uh, so we will put that all at the end. All right, and uh, so what I'd like to do today is actually take this first Sunday morning of the new year and address a question that will actually launch for us a new discipleship series that we will work through on Wednesday evenings. I'm going to come back to John on Sunday mornings, but on Wednesday evenings, I want to do a new discipleship series. And so the question that I want to address today is the question printed in your bulletin. It's the question, what is the gospel? Can you just take a moment and formulate an answer to that question? What is the gospel? Can you just formulate an answer in your mind? Maybe write it out on a piece of paper. Okay, let me give you just a minute to do that. What is the gospel? If someone were to ask you, how do you define that word, how would you respond? Are there key truths? Are there key events that go into your definition? Okay, does everybody have it? Everybody have an answer to that question? Can I call on somebody? I won't do that. All right. But I am guessing that all of you, at least church members, included in your definition the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Am I right about that? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All right, I'm I'm seeing heads say yes. That's in my definition. All right, well, the fact is you must believe that in order to be a member of our church. So that better be in your definition. All right, if you're a church member. But I have a second question for you. It's this. Did Jesus ever preach the gospel the way you just defined it? Show me the place in the gospels where Jesus preached the gospel the way you defined it. Can you do that? I bet you you can't. Did Jesus clearly preach his own death on the cross for your sins? Now, Jesus did make several cryptic remarks that later were understood to refer to his cross. For instance, he told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. But what did that mean? That wasn't clear until after he died. Where in the preaching of Jesus, the public preaching, does he explain that he died on the cross for your sins? Have you ever ever asked that question? Have you ever been asked that question? It's a troubling question, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came this morning? I want to answer that question. In fact, both questions, what is the gospel and did Jesus ever preach the gospel? And let's begin by turning to Mark chapter 1. And we are actually going to turn to numerous passages. And I considered putting the text in the PowerPoint this morning. But I actually prefer for you to see the text in print in your own Bibles. You actually lose the narrative flow and the chronological development of Scripture when you flatten the story arc out into digital text. So I really want you to see how the gospel develops. In Mark, we have a rapid introduction to Jesus' ministry. We find John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation within 13 verses. And then in chapter 1 and verse 14, Jesus' public preaching ministry begins with these words, Mark 1 and verse 14, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So did Jesus preach the gospel? Yes, according to Mark, from the beginning of his ministry. 
Matthew also describes the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee with these words, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So both Mark and Matthew tell us from the beginning he preached the gospel. But now let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I want to know, what has Jesus actually been preaching throughout Galilee when he preached the gospel? What is the content of those sermons? When we come to Matthew 16, Jesus is approximately two years and three months into his public preaching ministry. We're well into his ministry. In fact, it's drawing toward a close. His impending death in Jerusalem is perhaps nine months in the future. All right, so Jesus has been going everywhere preaching that thing called the gospel, and he has substantially completed his ministry in Galilee. Have those people ever heard that Jesus dies on the cross for their sins? In Matthew 16, Jesus has a private conversation with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And notice what Jesus reveals for the first time. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus begins explaining his death in private. Well, what has Jesus been publicly preaching all over Galilee for more than two years? Further, notice here that Jesus says nothing at all about making an atonement for the disciples' sins. Peter, in fact, resisted Jesus' death in verse 22. This will never happen to you, he says. So if Peter did not expect Jesus to die on the cross for his sins and resurrect, he certainly wasn't expecting Jesus to make an atonement for his sins through his death. So are you confused? If the gospel is about Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, what has Jesus been preaching now for more than two years all through Galilee? And turn now to Luke's parallel account in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 21, and prepare to be even more confused. And if you look at your Harmony of the Gospels, which you receive for Christmas this year, right? You will notice that Luke 9 records the same event recorded in Matthew chapter 16. And Luke gives us a little more detail in verse 21. Same event, more than two years into his ministry, verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, if the gospel concerns Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, why does Jesus strictly prohibit his disciples from preaching his death to anyone? Tell no one. Shortly after this event at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus predicted his death a second time. And Luke's intriguing record is found right here in chapter 9. Look at the middle of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus' death is right there on the horizon, and the disciples are clueless. When verse 45 says, it was concealed from them, this is probably referencing their lack of supernatural, spirit-inspired understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection. God had not disclosed the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection to even the disciples. 
Now listen to Mark's parallel account. Just listen to these words. For he was teaching his disciples, that's Jesus, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And Mark adds this note, but they did not understand the same. Mark also adds, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know. Jesus does not want news of his death and resurrection to leak out there to the press. So what gospel did Jesus preach if he didn't want people at this point to know that he was going to die? Well, let's turn now to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. Here Jesus predicts his death a third time. And Jesus journeys along the road now to Jerusalem for his final Passover. He is probably within about two weeks of his death. If we were to ask the 12 apostles two weeks before Jesus died on the cross, after three years of being discipled by Jesus himself, the same question I asked you, what is the gospel? How would they respond? I mean, they've been with Jesus for three years now. So what's the gospel? Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So what's the answer? No. Luke says it three times. They don't get it. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So after three years under the discipleship of Jesus himself, the apostles remain clueless about his death and resurrection and how that applies to them. So friends, should we conclude that Jesus actually never preached the gospel? But wait just a minute. Remember how Mark began. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So who wants to take the sermon from here? This is really challenging, isn't it? How did Jesus preach the gospel from the beginning of his ministry if the disciples themselves understood nothing about his death and resurrection three years later? That actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And can I add to the confusion? Way back in Luke 9... Jesus sent the 12 out on a preaching mission. The same 12 who are clueless in Luke 18 and listen to Luke's summary of that mission. Luke 9 and verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the 12 actually preached the gospel earlier but here they are, and they are clueless about Jesus' death and resurrection. They understood none of these things. So, are we adequately confused? Maybe we need to look at that term gospel again. What exactly is that? What does this term mean? And let me investigate this term by giving us three clues, all right? Three clues, and hopefully this will all come together for us. The first clue is found right here in Luke chapter 18 and in numerous other places. Notice Jesus' statement in the second half of verse 31. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
Here's what Jesus does. He connects his fate in Jerusalem with the message of the Old Testament. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he is preaching himself in the context of a much larger story. He's preaching himself in the context of the story of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus does this frequently. He frequently observes that his teaching, his preaching, his miracles, in fact, his whole life was really the fulfillment of those 39 books in the Old Testament. When Jesus preached, he preached himself as the fulfillment of the great story that began all the way back there with Moses in the book of Genesis. And let's just notice this clue again by turning to Luke chapter 24. All right, Luke 24 now. I told you lots of passages, but it's good to see the progression as we turn through the Gospels. In Luke 24, Jesus is now resurrected. He appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they are confused by recent events in Jerusalem, namely Jesus' death and reports of his resurrection. And they express their hope that Jesus of Nazareth might indeed be Israel's redeemer, but they had lost hope at the crucifixion. But the resurrected Jesus comes along and he responds this way. Notice the word all beginning in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There you have it again. Jesus preached himself in the context of a much larger story, the story of all the scriptures. Now, both in Luke 18 and in Luke 24, the disciples really fail to understand what Jesus is talking about, at least initially. But here in Luke 24, we learn of a moment of divine enlightenment. Look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And suddenly at that moment, it all comes together for them. Jesus was indeed the Christ. He was indeed the long-awaited Redeemer of the Old Testament. But the Christ had to die and rise again according to the Old Testament. They hadn't understood that before. Now observe also Jesus' emphasis back in verse 26 on the Christ. The Christ. We have 39 books in the Old Testament that prepare us to embrace the Christ when he appears. Now, they did not understand that the Christ had to die and resurrect, so they really failed to understand him initially. But the disciples suddenly have this great aha moment, like, oh, we get it. This is the Christ, and he had to die, and he had to resurrect. This is the greatest aha moment in all of human history. It's the greatest aha moment that you can have in your life. Oh, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ of the Old Testament. And he did indeed die and resurrect. That's the great aha moment they have. But again, notice what Jesus is doing here. He is connecting himself to the story of the entire Old Testament. We would say by extension, the entire Bible. But here's a question. How long did it take the disciples to reach this aha moment? Well, apparently it took three years of Jesus' preaching. Three whole years, plus his death and resurrection. When they approached Jesus' death in Jerusalem, they're almost there, they're two weeks away, they don't understand. They're clueless. But suddenly, their eyes are opened. Now, the text does not tell us that God opened their eyes, but numerous other texts confirm that indeed salvation is a matter of God just suddenly opening blind eyes. That's how it works. And this really is instructive for us in our evangelistic endeavors. Friends, never get ahead of God. Can I say it that way? Never get ahead of God. Wait for God's enlightenment of the sinner in his own good time. If it takes three years, give it three years. 
Now back to our first clue. Here it is again. Jesus preached himself as part of a much larger story. For Jesus, he is the center of the story that runs from Genesis to Malachi, or in his context, Genesis to 1 Chronicles. In the Hebrew canon, 1 Chronicles is the end of the Old Testament. He preaches himself as the center of that whole story. And by extension, we would say from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the center. That's our first clue. Now for a second clue, turn all the way back to the beginning of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And again, I like you to see how this is laid out. You're flipping to the text because you're flipping chronologically through the life of Christ. And let's just notice how Matthew 1 begins. And I'm going to give you three quick references. We'll put them all together, and you'll understand the gospel, I think, in a new, in a new way. How does Matthew begin? Well, don't look at verse 1. Look above verse 1. Notice the title, The Gospel According to to Matthew. Now, why do we call this book the gospel according to Matthew? Do you know why? Because everything that follows is the gospel. The gospel is not a chapter heading over chapter 27 where Jesus dies. That's part of the gospel, but the gospel itself, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John present it, Begins with chapter 1 and verse 1 and runs the entire book. This is all the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew begins with verse 1. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friends, that's the gospel. Now turn to the last chapter of Matthew. All, right, all the way to the end now, chapter 28. And let's just notice how the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, ends. Everything in the book is the gospel. That's why we call it the gospel. Jesus has now died and resurrected. Jesus returns to meet his disciples in Galilee. And notice what the resurrected Jesus claims. Verse 18 and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the end of Matthew's gospel. Of course, it's a commission. This is what we do with that. But this is the last claim that Jesus is making. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the gospel. Friends, the gospel isn't merely Jesus died for your sins, although Jesus did indeed die for your sins. The gospel, as Matthew explains, it is everything from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 28. That's the gospel according to Matthew. Now, why am I insisting on this? Let me show you why. Turn now to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And let's confirm this broader definition of the gospel. Now, Mark 1 told us Jesus went out preaching the gospel of God from the beginning of his ministry, right? Jesus preached the gospel from the beginning, the gospel of God. Well, what is the gospel of God? Well, it's interesting that Paul also uses that same term, the gospel of God. And let's notice how Paul defines it in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, all right? The gospel of God, that's what Jesus preached. Well, what is that? Keep reading. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Well, that reminds me of our first clue. Jesus connects the larger story of the Bible. But keep reading verse 3 concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Friends, that's precisely where Matthew 1 began, with a genealogy of Jesus. And keep reading. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And that's precisely where Matthew 28 ended, with Jesus receiving all authority in heaven and earth at his resurrection. All right, so look at it. Verse, verse 3, right? Verse 3 is Matthew chapter 1. There's the genealogy. Verse 4 is Matthew 28. Jesus has all authority. He was declared to be the Son of God in power at the resurrection. Now, would you notice in this case that Paul actually does not refer specifically to the cross of Jesus Christ? He uses the phrase, the gospel of God, but he actually doesn't refer to the cross of Christ. Rather, he's referring to everything that we find from Matthew 1 all the way down to Matthew 28. Everything you find in Matthew, right, for Paul, that's the gospel. From the genealogy all the way through the resurrection and the declaration of all authority, that's the gospel. And by extension, that would be true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's just make this really, really simple. Friends, Jesus is the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. Whenever you preach Jesus from Matthew 1 all the way down to Matthew 28, you are preaching the gospel. The gospel is a person, and that person is God. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. And I was reading that over the holidays, and he asked this very perceptive question. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Are we satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross without embracing the person of Jesus Christ. That's really crucial. Calling people to embrace the cross of Jesus without embracing the person of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. That's why Jesus spent more than two years establishing his identity before he ever revealed his death. It's really why the early church put enormous emphasis on the identity of Jesus Christ. You look at the early church councils, that's the issue they're dealing with. Who is Jesus Christ? Establish Jesus' identity before you preach the cross. That's the pattern that Jesus established for us. Now, I'll return to this momentarily, but here are two clues. The gospel, first of all, is part of the much bigger story of the Bible. Secondly, Jesus is the gospel. Now, am I saying that you have to understand the whole Bible and all four gospels before coming to Christ? Because I don't want anybody to be confused on this. Am I saying to your, kid, to your kids out there, you've got, you've got to understand the whole Bible, Right? before you can ever put your faith in Christ. That is not what I'm saying. All right? Let's turn to just one more passage now, 1 Corinthians 15, and let me give us a third clue to really sort out what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel really is the big story of the Bible. The gospel is everything about Jesus. But let's notice here in 1 Corinthians 15 how Paul uses the term gospel in a more narrow sense. What do we need to confess in order to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Friends, I don't pretend for a moment to understand the whole Bible, all right? I don't. I mean, I'm a Bible teacher. I pastor a church. I've been at this for a long time. I don't understand the whole Bible, I don't understand the four Gospels, all right? But I am a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Well, speaking to the Corinthians, Paul reminded them of the Gospel that he preached. Now, this is the same apostle 
who in Romans says the gospel of God is everything beginning with the birth of Jesus, or the genealogy of Jesus, all the way down to his exaltation at his resurrection. That's the gospel. The same apostle now is going to narrow in and use the gospel, that term, in a much more restricted way. All right? And notice how Paul summarizes the gospel into a confession. This is one of the earliest confessions in the church. It's found in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15. Look at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What is that? Well, he says, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right? So what is that? What is this gospel that, Jesus, that Paul preached to the Corinthians? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And Paul then proceeds in verses 5 through 8 to list witnesses to the resurrection because the resurrection is really foundational to the gospel. But would you just notice here how Paul prioritizes certain truths? Paul says, of first importance. And Paul is highlighting certain truths. And let's just note three truths then. First of all, Paul uses the term Christ. We read effortlessly over that term because we're so familiar with it, but who is the Christ? If you recall from an earlier sermon, I showed you how the Gospels really are structured to answer that question for us. Who is the Christ? And that really was Jesus' mission to preach that part of the Gospel. Who is the Christ? Friends, there are thousands of people who died on crosses. They are not my Savior. Jesus' identity as the Christ is all important. So again, the identity of Jesus is a major theme of all four Gospels. Can I say it this way? The, The Gospels really prioritize the identity of Jesus. Who is this? He dies and resurrects at the end, and the epistles come along and they explain, oh, this is what his death actually meant, right? That's really how the Bible is structured. The gospel gives us the identity of Jesus. They tell us what happened to him. Now, what does that mean? The epistles then come along and they explain, oh, this is what that death meant. This is what justification is. This is what sanctification is. You got it? That makes sense? But what I'm saying to you is the identity of Jesus Christ really is important. It's a major theme of all four Gospels. It's, in fact, emphasized more than even the truth of Jesus' death. Jesus' preaching, his teaching, his miracles, his actions, all establish his identity as the Christ. It's the Christ who must die, and this really is the Christ. And that's why I say calling people to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ without first embracing the person of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. That really is not how the gospel is presented to us in the New Testament. Secondly, notice how Paul also emphasizes, of course, the death of Jesus. We've got a whole epistle, the epistle of Romans, that really explains that to us. He died according to the Scriptures. The death of Jesus Christ is indeed all important. So don't anyone mishear anything I've said today. It really is true that the death of Christ must happen The Gospels, again, reveal the history of that event, and the epistles interpret the meaning of that event. So Jesus, friends, did not die so that you can live. Jesus died so that you can die. That's what the epistles explain. I am crucified with Christ. I didn't see it when I looked at his cross. The disciples themselves were like, what's going to happen? This will never happen to you, right? Afterwards, it's like, oh, I died with Christ. Paul explains that in Romans. Jesus died so that I can die. I'm crucified with Christ. And then Jesus resurrected so that we can live. I am raised to new life with him. I get that again in the epistles. And that is the third truth that Paul emphasizes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. So put that all together. What is the first importance What really is important, first, the identity of Jesus. He is the Christ. Second, the death of Jesus. 
And third, the resurrection of Jesus. And all of that is your third clue. Here's the third clue. The gospel centers on the death and resurrection of the Christ. All right? So here's all three clues. Number one, the gospel is a story of the whole Bible. Number two, Jesus is the gospel. And number three, the gospel centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, with those three clues in place, let's attempt to work out an understanding of the gospel. And I want to give you six words that, for me, really help summarize the gospel. All right? You don't have to use these same six words. But I like to take these six words, and on Wednesday evenings, I want to work back through the gospel and really think our, or maybe rethink our whole approach to outreach and to discipleship in the coming year. Six words divided into two groups of three. If someone were to ask you, well, what's the story of the Bible? What's, what's that whole book all about? All right? How would you answer that question? When Jesus preached the entire Old Testament is pointing to him, well, what's the message of the Old Testament? Here are the first group of three words, all right? Creation, fall, redemption. These are not original with me, by the way. Evangelicals, Protestants have used these three terms for a long, long time. Creation, fall, redemption. That's the story of the Bible in three words. God created it, man destroyed it, God is redeeming it. That's the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. Friends, if I have 30 minutes to explain the gospel to somebody, I use those three terms. Friends, if I have unlimited time and multiple sessions to explain the gospel to someone, I use those three terms, creation, fall, redemption. When dealing with major controversial issues like sexuality or gender or racism or poverty, or when I'm faced with deeply troubling questions like why do tornadoes spin through our cities and why do pandemics just tear apart the world, why do wildfires burn through my native county of Boulder, Colorado. Why did this happen? You know what I do? I use those same three terms. God made it, man broke it, God is redeeming it. God created the world perfect, he created it beautiful. Man fell and he ruined the creation and God is redeeming his creation. When I meet someone who has no familiarity with the scripture at all, often the Romans road doesn't make any sense to them. You just put them down this road, and it's like, well, where did this road begin, and where is it going? That's especially true in our postmodern, biblically illiterate world. In fact, there are people who, you, you talk about sin, they don't even believe in sin. You, you, you've got to go back to the beginning. Where did this whole road begin? I use these three terms, creation, fall, redemption. That's the storyline in which the Romans road makes sense. That's the storyline in which the Gospels make sense. Creation, fall, redemption, all right? So we'll do more with that on Wednesday nights. But let's just zoom in now on that third term, redemption. And let's discover a second group of three words. How is God ultimately redeeming His creation? And the Bible's answer to that question focuses our attention on four books called the Gospels. And these Gospels are all about a person. Jesus is the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. The four gospels concern the incarnation of the creator. He has come. The God who made everything has come into human history to redeem his creation. Now, there's a lot to know about Jesus in the gospels, but I've got 60 minutes on an airplane with somebody. So, what, what, what do I teach this person as of first importance, right? That's Paul's term. What's of first importance, all right? Here are three more words. Number one, identity. Number two, death. Number three, resurrection. In other words, who is Jesus? Why did he die? And why did he resurrect? That's how I explain the gospel to people. Again, I'm not saying you have to do it that way, all right? But I'm going to spend some time on Wednesday nights and really try to develop this. Now, Let's go back to our earlier question, and let's really try to solve this. Did Jesus preach the gospel? 
And the answer is yes, indeed. But Jesus focused his attention primarily on that first question, who is Jesus? Who am I? That was really the focus of Jesus' preaching. The majority of his ministry actually concerned establishing his identity as the Christ, God incarnate, the Redeemer in human flesh. And friends, let me just encourage you to really take time with the question of Jesus' identity. Jesus did. People have to fall in love with Jesus. They have to really desire Jesus, not just his work, but Jesus, his person. Calling people again to embrace the cross of Jesus, your ticket out of hell, without embracing the person of Jesus is a false gospel. That's not the gospel. You must embrace Jesus. After more than two years of publicly preaching Jesus, let me say it again, after more than two years of publicly preaching after more than two years, Jesus put this question to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who am I? And that really is a summary of everything Jesus was preaching. Do you get it? Who am I? And Peter got the answer correct. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And only then did Jesus advance the next two questions. Only then did Jesus say, okay, let's talk about my death. And now let's talk about my resurrection. That was Jesus' approach to the gospel. So friends, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus preached his own identity as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He was the Redeemer sent to heal his broken creation. Jesus proved his identity as the Creator, sent to heal his creation through a vast variety of miracles that only a Creator could perform, overcoming every kind of sickness and disease imaginable. Who is Jesus? He is the Creator. Jesus proved his identity by casting out demons and rolling back the great tidal wave of evil that just kept swarming over the world. Jesus proved his identity as the second Adam when he endured those blistering temptations out there in the wilderness. Jesus proved his identity by actively obeying completely the entire Old Testament law, which no one in all of human history could keep. Jesus proved his identity. Jesus proved his identity through his unrivaled teaching. Never a man spoke like this man. That's really the heartbeat of the Gospels. So if we were to sum up his identity in a word, we would say this, Jesus is indeed the Christ. That's really what the Gospels are showing us. And that's why Paul uses the term Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, once you've settled that identity, that identity issue, who is Jesus? And at that point, let's talk about his death. Let's talk about his resurrection. Without death and without resurrection, friends, there is no gospel. None. And Jesus himself, though, never explained the full meaning of his death and resurrection until they really understood his identity. And in fact, he left the apostles to really explain, through the inspiration of the Spirit, the real meaning of his death and resurrection. You have to go beyond the gospels. You have to go to Romans. You have to go to Galatians to really understand the full meaning of that death of Jesus Christ. Paul, in particular, is the one who really explains the meaning of the death and the resurrection. But let's just be really, really clear. I don't want anyone to misunderstand. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are of first importance. All right? Jesus did not make that clear in his own ministry because he was establishing his identity. But I'm not trying to undermine the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Don't anyone go out of here saying that. The apostles come along after that great aha moment and they explain, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's what the death means. That's what the resurrection means. Paul emphasizes death and resurrection as of first importance. So again, friends, when I set about to explain the gospel to people, whether I have 30 minutes or a whole semester, this is the approach I almost always take. I tell the story of creation, fall, redemption. That's the larger story of the Bible. And then I narrow in on the story of Jesus. Who is he? And then I talk about his death and his resurrection. Now, as I said, I want to take some time on Wednesday evenings and really develop this. And I am actually concerned that even in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, evangelical, fundamental churches, uh, we perhaps have embraced too narrow a definition of the gospel. 
as if the death of Jesus is all there was to it. When the gospel becomes nothing more than Jesus died for my sins, have we properly taught people to fall in love with Jesus Christ with heart, soul, and mind? Have we properly taught people to embrace the whole gospel from Genesis to Revelation? Have we offered people a fire escape when in reality they will hear those dreadful words, depart from me, I never knew you? We pressure children to embrace the cross and forgiveness of sins as soon as they can articulate a prayer. We plunge them quickly into the waters of baptism. We rush a potential convert down the aisle or rush them to pray the sinner's prayer. We take people instantly to the death of Christ in a 30-minute conversation. But have they really, truly embraced Jesus Christ? That's my concern. I think we are left wondering why nearly 100% of children who pray the sinner's prayer at age five are plagued by doubts in high school and college. Where am I getting that number 100%? It's because I take a survey every year of seniors at Bob Jones who grew up in Christian homes. Every year. And the answer is always the same. Always. Inevitably. Yeah, we had a bunch of doubts. We didn't understand. I prayed that prayer when I was five, but I didn't really understand. I didn't love Jesus. I get that response every single year, every semester. And I'm alarmed by how many end up walking away from the faith the moment they leave their parents' home. Many Christians' parents watching their kids drift away cling to the flimsy hope, oh, my kid prayed the prayer when he was a child, as if salvation was merely a formula of words that kids pray as a rite of passage in a Christian home. That's not the gospel. Now, children can come to Christ. Absolutely. Don't anyone misunderstand what I'm saying. Children should come to Christ. But children need to go beyond just praying that prayer as a five-year-old. Their hearts need to be nurtured to really, truly love Jesus Christ. In modern Christianity, there are many stony ground conversions. I'm borrowing that term from Spurgeon. Spurgeon talked about all these stony ground conversions. And I wonder if we just pressure people to respond immediately to a gospel invitation when Jesus would have taken three years with that person. Just process them, right? Get them in, pray them, you're done, right? Jesus took three years. Jesus apparently was in no hurry to preach his death and resurrection before they embraced his person. Jim Earhart writes of his experiences with the Billy Graham Crusades, and Billy Graham led many people to Christ, but here's what he says. While I was a pastor in New England, our church participated in four and two Graham Crusades. We received the names of ten converts from one crusade and six from another. In our follow-up, not one was interested in the church, the Bible, or even talking about his newfound faith in Christ. Not one. Other pastors reported the same results. And I'm not, I'm not condemning Graham. The fact is, people come down the aisle and make the profession, and it's all, they've never been changed by Christ. I'm not going to allow Christ to totally turn the world upside down and inside out. When I was first called to UBC as a pastor, I began preaching the gospel with Matthew 1 and verse 1. You probably remember them. And I preached Christ's genealogy. I preached Christ's virgin birth. And I think I was about three sermons into my pastorate here, and someone was very angry with me. And he wrote a letter to Ted Whitwell, who was then chairman of our deacons, and Ted probably remembers this. And he wanted to know when I was going to start preaching the gospel. And that is the very alarming problem that I'm talking about. I took that person to lunch and talked with him. And basically, he expected I was going to preach the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in every sermon, which I have no problem with that. You understand that. But I asked him whether Jesus preached his crucifixion in every sermon. Did Jesus himself do that? I asked him, what really is the gospel? Is the gospel everything that Jesus preached? And he never considered that question. I asked him whether the gospel included everything in Matthew 1 through chapter 28 or just the chapter on the crucifixion, and he had never considered that question. For him, the gospel was just Matthew 27. Right? And I explained to him that, yes, indeed, when I preach Jesus, I am preaching the gospel. I can, I can focus on his crucifixion, and you would blame me for not preaching his identity. I can preach his identity, you blame me for not preaching his crucifixion. It's all the gospel. It's all the gospel. 
He had never really considered that Jesus' identity is just as important for the gospel as Jesus' death. Thousands of people died on crosses, but I can only be saved. I can only be crucified with one of them. I can only be resurrected with one of them. I can only be saved through one of them. So that, again, is why we have to preach Jesus. We have to preach Jesus broadly from Genesis to Revelation, preach Jesus more narrowly from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28, and then also preach Jesus of first importance, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So friends, can I really just encourage us with this? Can we just really turn our attention to the identity of Jesus and make sure that we include that in our understanding of the gospel? Jesus is the creator against whom we rebelled. And have we truly taught people to love Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind? To really love the creator? That's preaching the gospel. Have we taught people to embrace Jesus even when his preaching condemns us? Can you embrace a Jesus who condemns you, not one who saves you only? That's hard for people. Have we taught people that the Jesus of the Gospels is the Yahweh of the Old Testament who gave us his law? Christians have this almost flippant attitude to the law. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not under the law. That was not Jesus' attitude. Jesus' attitude was God said it. I'm going to obey it. And I'm going to obey it on your behalf. My attitude toward Jesus and the law is thank you, Jesus, for keeping that law for me because I couldn't do it. It's not, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to be under all that. Have we preached Christ as the Yahweh of the Old Testament who perfectly kept God's law? Have we embraced Jesus as the creator who wept over his fallen creation and came to restore it? That means that we have to look at the creation and say, this is not right. This is not what we want it to be. Have we embraced Jesus, friends, who has not come to affirm us, but to condemn us? You look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, he's not going around affirming people. He is condemning people. He will condemn you before he will redeem you. That's how you have to preach Christ. Have we embraced the work of Jesus Christ without embracing the person of Jesus Christ? All right? So let's spend some time on Wednesday evenings, and we will really work at this and try to improve our evangelism and discipleship efforts. So we pray, Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We pray, Lord, that you would have your hand of blessing upon this new study that we engage in. May we really, truly just love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, everything about him. And Lord, we're thankful for his death. We're thankful, Lord, that our sins are atoned for. We're thankful, Lord, for his resurrected power. But I pray, Lord, that all of us would really fall in love with the person of Jesus and desire to be conformed into his image and likeness, and to leave behind the lesser things of this world. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.